Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. You know, one thing that one thing that's a good heart check for us is, uh, you know, when we when we hear testimonies, when we hear people talk about things that God's done, um, it does it really excite us, or is there something inside of us that even if we're if we're just being honest, like is there a little part of us that feels like maybe they got blessed at our expense, like because they did, I won't. As if God is limited, and He looked down, and He said, "I have to bless only one of them, and I picked them." rather than understanding that God has limitless resource and that nobody's ever blessed at my expense, that they're blessed at His expense. And so if I hear a story of someone being blessed, it's not that like, it should do nothing more than excite me because it's a revelation of His character and His nature and who He is. And if He did it for them, He'll do it for me because He's not a respecter of persons. But if we have this mentality that God is limited, then sometimes when we hear stories of people being blessed, it can cause something inside of us. And you know the truth is, is like anytime that happens, like we say this all the time with the offering, but in any part of our lives, like when we take up the offering and you hear someone in church stand up and talk about money, if there's something inside of you that's like, uh, whenever they talk about money in church, or like, you know, they just want your money, or there's that kind of thought ever rises up, it's okay. Just put your money back in your pocket. Because God loves a cheerful giver, not someone who gives out of compulsion or out of need, right? So we don't want you giving because you feel like you have to or because the guy passing the plate is keeping notes and letting me know who gives and who doesn't. Because that doesn't happen here. I have no clue who gives what. I love it that way. Um, We have elders that handle the money, that take it up, that count it, deposit it. You have a system of checks and balances. Two people count it together. They sign off. A different person makes the deposit. All that stuff happens. I don't want to know who gives what. I just know that you guys are generous and that you give. And that anytime there's a need for something, we always have it. And it's awesome to be that way. But, but like if, if, if that rises up in you, don't give because you feel like you have to. But know this, if, if it says that God loves a cheerful giver, then that means there's a place that you can come to where when you do give, it's actually a joy and you're doing it cheerfully because you want to and you desire to. So rather than just like gritting your teeth and faking it and putting a smile on your face and acting cheerful, like literally get alone with him and just ask him, God, I know your word says that you love a cheerful giver. And right now, if I'm being honest, when it comes to giving, I'm not real cheerful about it. So what is it that I'm not seeing? What is it that I don't understand? What is it that I don't know that keeps me from walking in that place of cheerful generosity? Because that's how we change. We don't change by faking it. We don't change by acting like we know something that we really don't. We don't fake uh, change by just going through motions. We change by being honest with ourselves and honest with Him and coming before Him and letting Him speak to us and His Word change us rather than acting like it has. The worst thing that we can do is act like something we're not. Because there's no blessing in that for us. And it's hard work. It's like it's really hard work to pretend to be something that you're not, to play the part of the hypocrite, to have one thing come from your mouth and another thing in your life and and to try to make them match up and try to remember who you are in different situations. I did that for so long and I wore so many different masks. Every time I was in a room, I was figuring out who do I have to be to get what I want from the people that are in this room. It's horrible. It's the worst way to live that it's possible because you're never really you because you don't believe anybody would love you because you don't love yourself. That's why he says love your neighbor as you love yourself. When you learn to love yourself, then you understand, okay, I'm not going to be everybody's favorite, but I'm his favorite. 
And if I just be who He created me to be, I'll be who I need to be in the situations that He places me in. And believing that inside of me is a part of Him that nobody else can reflect because I'm fearfully, wonderfully, individually made to reflect His image and His glory on the earth. And if I'm acting like somebody else, I'm robbing the earth of what He placed inside of me. And I'm doing a horrible job of trying to be something I was never created to be. So if I can just be honest with myself and honest with Him, then things actually start to change and I find myself living in a place. It says my people are are destroyed. My people perish for lack of knowledge. Where our lives are destroyed, there's destruction, there's loss, there's grief, there's, there's harm. All these things come because either of a lack of knowledge or because it says because I've sent the knowledge and they've rejected it. And so if there's something in my life that doesn't line up, rather than like faking it, I honestly, like we mean this as a body. Like all of us mean this. I'm just the mouthpiece for everybody in here. Like don't fake it. Don't go through the motions. Don't just do it. Don't grit your teeth and white knuckle it. Get alone with Him and say, God, I want to be so changed that I walk in what Your Word says that You desire from me. And I know that if I'm with you, and I know if I spend time with you, and I know if I'm listening to you, you'll change my heart to a place where I actually can cheerfully give. Where, I actually, where it's a joy for me to go out and do the things that you talk about doing in your Word. You know, everything that He asks us to do in His Word is something that He wants to place a desire for inside of our heart. That's what He's talking about when He says He'll give you the desires of your heart. It's not that He's a genie in a bottle and you say, I want a new car. Right? And, it's not that. It's that He will actually place desires in your heart so that the things He wants from your life will be the things that your heart actually desires. And you'll walk in like such a huge level of fruitfulness and such a huge level of joy and such a huge level of, of satisfaction in this, with, with the way that you're, you're living your life because you're actually living from desires that He's placed inside of your heart. And so, I, I don't maybe maybe just one person needs to hear that, maybe everyone, but... Please, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, um, don't ever just do something because you think you have to. If he says that he wants you to do it cheerfully. Find the place where actually you see the reason for giving cheerfully. Find the place where you know him as provider, where you know him as source, where it's actually a joy for you to live with your hands open saying, God, all I have is yours. Whatever you want, it's yours. Because that's the, just the most amazing place to live because then our, our lives and our desires and our wants are lining up with His desires and His wants for us. So, how are you guys this morning? Good? Yeah? Is it hot? Is it getting hot? Yeah? Okay. Huh? Merle's cold? Is anybody else besides Merle cold? One other person? Merle, congratulations. You and Carl's wife are cold. Um, we got bankies for you. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, open them up real quick to Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to be talking about the, the parable of talents. I think as long as I've preached, and I've preached quite a few messages over the past five years. I don't know that I've ever preached this, um, this parable. Because honestly, it's one that's kind of like, I get the concept of it, but there were some things in there I, I kind of had a hard time with and I was wor- trying to figure out and work through. And I, I feel like I've got some clarity on that, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach out of there today. But, but we've been talking about, um, for the most part, 
for a while now about sowing and reaping. And we've been talking about the fact that, that what we sow will also reap. Did you see that? You did? Everyone did? I just threw my gum on the wood back there, and I got busted by some people. The halo shrinking. Um, well, I looked up and people were laughing, so I assumed that somebody must have seen it, so I fair let everyone in on the joke. But we've been talking about sowing and reaping. We've been talking about the fact that what we do matters, that, that inside of every, the fruit of every decision, there's a seed that reproduces after itself. It's, it's the fruit hanging on the tree in the garden, and, and it's, it's the enemy telling Adam and Eve that they needed something in that fruit, that there was something that God was holding back, and if they would eat of that fruit, they would become like Him. The problem is they were already created like Him because it's in His image and in His likeness He created them. So they were, He was trying to get them to believe there was something God was holding out, there was something that they lacked, and that there was something that there would be so amazing if they would just go ahead and eat that fruit. And all He was trying to do was this. He wanted to get the seed of that bad decision of that sin inside of them so that it could reproduce after its own kind because one of the principles god put in place in the earth is he said every seed will reproduce after its own kind when you plant corn in the ground a corn stalk comes up when you plant wheat in the ground a wheat stalk comes up when you plant apple seeds in the ground an apple tree comes up and it would be weird if anything but that happened that's a principle we put in in place and so all the enemy wanted was for them to eat the fruit so that the seed would be in them so that it could reproduce after its own kind. And they did. And for eternity since that point, every man has been born that is born of a man and born of a woman has been born with that seed inside of them reproducing after its own kind. It's why Jesus was born the seed of a woman, not the seed of man. It's why the Holy Spirit had to father him so that that same seed that was inside of Adam and Eve and all of their offspring wasn't reproduced inside of Jesus so that he could actually be born free from the seed of sin. And, and be perfect and be blameless and live a perfect and blameless life so that He would be the, the sacrifice that was appropriate to take the sin of the world upon Him. And so, just in life, like everything that's coming at you, just think about that. Like how, like how many people over the past month have actually thought about that principle when they've seen things in their life? Like, like when you, you see things, alright, so it's like 8% effective, the message that I preach. Cool. That's, hey, that's fine. I'll take it. It's better than zero. <laughs> But no, think about this, right? If, if inside of, every, of the fruit of every decision is a seed that will reproduce after its own kind, it becomes really easy when we're making decisions to see, do I want that to reproduce itself in me? Because the ultimate goal of sin is to reproduce itself inside of you. Evil is looking to reproduce itself inside of you. The Father is looking to reproduce Himself inside of you. And the one that gets reproduced inside of you is the one that you eat the fruit from. So there's the, there's the first time that fruit is hanging on a tree, and the first Adam eats of it, puts it to his lips, and, and when he puts it to his lips, it, and, he, and he eats of it, that seed gets inside him and begins to reproduce. And then Jesus comes, who is the first fruit of many brethren. He hangs upon a tree and says, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood if you want to have any part of me. What is he saying? He's saying the first time you ate that fruit, the seed that went inside you and reproduced itself was evil. But I have come now to redeem that so that if you will eat of me and take me inside of you, then the first fruit of God, Jesus, will actually reproduce his life inside of me and you. And suddenly, now we are born again, a new creation. No longer as if we were born the first time into, into the first Adam, but born this, again the second time into the second Adam. And this time, without the seed of sin inside of us, because all things have passed away, behold, everything has become new. 
And that's pretty amazing. And when you think about that, right, there's this principle of it reproducing. So a good thing to do when I'm making decisions in my life, there's always fruit. See, when there's the temptation is to eat the fruit. So you're driving down the road innocently, speeding along the highway, and somebody decides that they need to get over more than you need to keep going as fast as you've been going. And so they get over and they're going a little too slow. And suddenly you jam your brakes, they jam their brakes, and now they come out the window and they wave to you with one finger telling you hello. There's fruit. See, you're laughing, but it's true. There's fruit in that. And if you take the bait and if you eat that, it will reproduce itself inside of you. It will reproduce frustration. It will reproduce anger. And that fruit will come to surface and will come to fruition. That seed will bear fruit after its own kind. And someday you will reap the harvest of that seed that you took inside of you when you ate the fruit. And rather than responding in kindness and rather than a soft word turning away wrath, you responded in the same way that you were responding to and you cannot isolate it It, i promise you that fruit is not only in your life to reproduce itself if you ever run into that same person again you may never see them again in your life ever but it will come out somewhere because it's always going to be in there and it's always looking to reproduce itself and suddenly you find yourself in a situation where someone says something to you you walk in the door your wife says something to you your husband says something to you your kids say something or you go you're hanging out with a friend and suddenly this anger gets triggered inside of you this frustration starts to rise up in you this irritation rises up in you what is it you're eating the fruit of what you ate earlier in the day is now reproducing itself because it promised it would reproduce itself after its own kind And the frustration and the irritation that you're experiencing in that moment is simply the process that God said would happen coming true in your life. And you cannot isolate where it comes out. It's, it's, like, it's like hatred, right? When you hate somebody and you harbor anger and hatred, if you think you can isolate that anger, that hatred, and that bitterness simply towards the person who caused that, right? which is kind of a funny word, right? Caused. Like you caused me to be angry. No, I was, a, I was an opportunity for you to be angry, but you caused you to be angry because you chose to be angry. You chose to take the bait. You chose to allow bitterness and frustration. You chose to respond out of what you felt rather than what you knew was true. It's the truth. Nobody's ever made you angry in your life. Plenty of people have probably given you opportunity. But if you're angry with people, it's because you chose to be. Well, I didn't even have time to think. It just came out. Trust me, nothing's ever come out of your life that, has, that isn't in there because when you were thinking and you did have time to think, you chose and allowed it to be in there. I promise. Think about it. You smash your thumb with a hammer. You don't invent a word. There's a word already inside of you that comes out. And you say, I wasn't even thinking. It was just a reaction. But the truth of the matter is, is that word got inside your vocabulary at some point when you were thinking when it wasn't a reaction. Nothing's ever come out that wasn't put in there when you did have time. You may not have had to think about it in the moment, but at some time you thought about it and you allowed that to have a place inside of you so that it was actually in you to come out at some point. You never have invented a word. You may have strung together a few words and invented a new one, but it all started with words you already knew. And it's the same thing. There's no anger coming out except anger that you've let in. And if you think that you can isolate it, well, I... You don't understand what that person did to me. No, you don't understand what you're allowing that person to still do to you to this day. Because it's harming you. 
because the anger and the hatred and the bitterness that you're harboring in that little corner of your heart will poison the way that you treat every single person in your life at some point if you let it stay there because you cannot isolate it and simply direct it at the one that you think was the cause of it. It's just the truth. See, because if you have bitterness, you'll become bitter. If you have anger, you'll become angry. If you have hatred, you'll become hateful. And eventually, what's in your heart will find its way out onto your lips because out of the abundance and overflow of the heart, a man speaks. And you'll find yourself saying things and wondering where it came from. And it's being directed at somebody that never did anything to you. And you don't even understand why it's coming out. It's because at some point you chose to give that a place and you don't get to choose where it's directed. At some point it will come out, maybe even when you're not thinking about it. But it got in there because when you were thinking, you allowed it to stay. I know, that's, see, that's why it says that we are all without excuse. Because you're the steward of your own heart. You can't choose n- nothing, but you do get to choose what goes in and stays. You get to choose what fruit you're eating. You get to choose what, what seed is inside of you, what's reproducing itself inside of you, and what you're walking. It says, from their, from their words, the good person eats the fruit of the things that they've spoke. In other words, when my life, when what's in my heart are good things, what comes out of my mouth are good things, and I live in it and I enjoy that. Have you ever been around somebody that's just encouraging to be around? Like if you if you want to be encouraged, you just talk to them and they just they're constantly encouraged. They constantly have a way of looking at things to where they put the best construction on things. And even when you feel like everything's going wrong, they can look at it and they can find the good in it. Even when you feel like somebody is completely hopeless, they can look at that person and see the gold in them. You understand that that's the kind of person that eats from the fruit of their mouth, the good things that they bring forth from their heart. It's like that hopelessness thing. I've talked about this every service for the past four four weeks or so, but we have to understand this and we have to get this. I'm telling you, if you allow yourself to look at one person, it doesn't matter who they are, and say they're hopeless, you are allowing that seed into your life and it will reproduce and at some point, it will come out in a way that you feel like something in your life is hopeless. Because the only way you can judge someone to be hopeless is if you say there's either nothing God can or nothing God will do for that person. And if you believe that about them, at some point you'll believe that about yourself and you'll find yourself in a place believing that there's either nothing God can or nothing God will do. I promise you. Don't ever allow yourself to, 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 to think that somebody else is hopeless because when you allow that thinking into your mind and you allow that pattern of thinking into your life, at some point you'll judge your own circumstances the same way. And if you feel hopeless, there's a good chance it's because you've judged somebody else to be hopeless and in doing so, you allowed that seed away into its life and now you're living in the fruit of what that seed reproduced. I'm telling you, if you feel hopeless in any area, go back and look and see if you've made judgments towards people and called them hopeless and repent. Repent doesn't just mean say you're sorry. It means actually to think differently. So look at them and realize through a different lens, wait a minute, I thought they were hopeless, but I'm actually realizing looking at them that nobody is hopeless because nobody is beyond the love of the Father. Nobody's beyond the power of Jesus. 
And if I believe that He can change anything in my life, then I have to believe He can change anything in their life, and vice versa. If there's something in your life I don't think Jesus can change, that means there's something in my life that I potentially will believe that Jesus can't change. And I have nobody to blame when I feel that way but myself because I allowed that thinking in when I judged somebody else that way. Don't ever do that. Don't take the bait. Don't eat the fruit. It doesn't matter. That's why we look with eyes of faith and we see people according to the Spirit, no longer according to the flesh. Because when we look from the outside and we make judgments based only on natural things, we eliminate the possibility that there's something greater that we can't see that's at work in their life. And eventually we'll find ourselves feeling hopeless. Man, if that's you, like right now, if you feel like maybe you've allowed that to happen in your life, like it's not a big thing, right? It's not like the prodigal son, he thought it was going to be this huge ordeal. I'm going to go back to my dad and I'm going to tell him I'm not worthy to be his son anymore and I want to be one of his servants and I'll work my way back into his group. He had all these bright ideas of what he was going to do because he couldn't see a way that he could get back to where he was without working his way there. No longer worthy to be your son. Don't feel like that. Don't let yourself have little brother mentality and feel like there's something you have to do. You know, I did seven things wrong, so I have to do four things, 14 things right to get back to even. It's not like that with him. There's no getting back to even with him. It's turning and believing correctly. Things were better in my father's house. Now he believes differently. At one point he believed things were better outside of his father's house. So he took everything that he had and he left the safety of his father's home. Why? Because he thought things were better out there. At one point in time, he comes to his senses and he repents. He begins to think differently. He remembers what it was like in his father's house. And now he says, it was better from the servants in my father's house. See, now he understands that it's actually better to be there. And the second he does that, that thought controls his actions because he begins to walk towards the father's house. But the father doesn't make him walk all the way back. The father doesn't let him grovel his way back into his good graces. He sees him coming. He's, he's not leaving where he is. He, he understands. Listen, I can't come there and make what I have here there because what you have in me isn't available anywhere else. You have to be in me to enjoy what it's like to live inside of my kingdom. If I could, I would bring it there, but I can't. Because it's only in me that you find this peace and this joy and this hope. Because if you could find it anywhere else, then you would stay there. And He does not want you to stay there. He wants you to hate where you are if you're not in Him so that you will come running back to Him remembering what it was like. And so the second He takes a step back, the Father sees. He thinks differently. He has repented. He's now turned from where He was and He's heading back in the right direction. And the Father runs to Him and overwhelms the Son. And the Son starts to get out His rehearsal line. Father, I've sinned against You and against God. I'm no longer worthy. And the Father won't have anything of it. Shut your mouth. Don't say another word. Here's a ring. Here's a robe. Here's some slippers. Go kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party because my son's come home. Notice what he doesn't do. Yeah, I've heard this before. We'll see if you're serious. You go work with the servants for a while and then you you can kind of be on probation and then we'll take a look and we'll see how serious you are because you left and you know when you left that you told me I was as good as dead to you because you demanded your inheritance from me. And when you told me you wanted your inheritance, what you were saying was there's nothing that you are worth in my life except for what you can give me and I wish you were dead since you're not. Could you just speed up the process and give me what's coming to me when you do die? 
That's what he did when he told him he wanted his inheritance. He was saying to him, there is no longer anything of value left that you can offer me. All that's left is what is coming to me when you die. So can we just skip the waiting and you give me what's due to me right now? And notice the father doesn't tell him, you know, I'm really hurt. I've got a sun wound. I've got a sun wound and we're going to need to go to some intense counseling for a while to get rid of this thing. Because you don't understand what you did when you said that to me and the things that it caused in me. And if you think you can just walk back in here and find your place, he didn't say that to him. Why? Because he's not in it for him. He's on the porch weeping because he cares about the son and what's going on with him because his love is for him because he loves him and understands if he's here, he's doing the best that he can. I want him here, not for me. I want him here for him. I'm not hurt by him. I'm hurt for him. I'm okay. I'm still on, in, on the porch. I still live in my kingdom. I still have everything that I've had. It's he that's missing out. It's he that's hurting. It's he that's living with the pigs. It's he that doesn't see where he could be living and is settling for something so far less than the life that I have for him as a son. And so my heart is broken for him, but not by him. And the second he wants to come back, no longer do I treat him as anything less than a son. And I welcome him back in because I didn't have a deep hurt inside of me because of what he's done i had a deep hurt inside of me because of who he was choosing to live like and the second that changes the hurt is gone why because he's hurt for you not by you and then he calls us to love people the same way that's the gospel like that's the simplest definition of the gospel greater love is not a man than this that he would lay down his own life he would lay down his right to be hurt his right to be offended he would lay down his life for another It's simple. But you don't know what they did. It doesn't matter what they did. They don't know what they did either. That's why Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So there's a good chance. I don't know what they did. You know what? There's every bit of good a chance or better that they don't know what they did either. If they knew who they were and they knew what they know now, they wouldn't have done what they did. It's why they repented when on the day of Pentecost. Peter says to them, now you see this Jesus whom you crucified as both Savior and Lord. What's he saying? Now you guys actually see. Before you saw, you thought he was a, a blasphemer. Before you saw, you thought that he was a crazy man. Before you saw, you thought that he was here to try to take something from you. And so you killed him because you didn't see him for who he really is. What must we do to be saved? Think differently. Repent. Be baptized. And you too receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Were they sorrowful? Absolutely. Should we be sorrowful when we see the way that we've walked away and the things that we've done and, the, and what we've caused? Absolutely. But the point of repentance isn't for you to feel sorry. The point of repentance is for you to feel sorry enough that you never want to be there again so that you change the way you think and live differently. To wallow in pain is needless for the Christian. But another thing that's needless for the Christian is to wallow in self-guilt over the things that you've done before you knew better. And now that Christ has come to allow your life to be defined by mistakes that you made before He had. I promise you, there's a lot of people that are trying to get forgiven for stuff they've already been forgiven for. 
And the problem isn't that they haven't been forgiven. The problem is, is that they don't believe they have, and so they haven't forgiven themselves, and they hold it against themselves, and they define themselves in a way that He doesn't. And it's never going to work. You'll never find the bottom of that hole. You'll keep going deeper and deeper until you actually decide to look up and realize He's not watching you fall. He's calling for you to come up, and He has no intentions of you defining yourself by the mistakes that He sent His Son to die for. He said, I'll remember their sins no more when I forgive them. If he thought they were worth forgetting, he probably thinks it's worth you forgetting too. He said he's not going to hold them against you once, they, once he's forgiven you. That's the Gospel. That, 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 that's why I love Christmas. It's like it's the coming of that promise. If you don't love Christmas, something's wrong. I'm serious. I got one eye on you. Like I hate Christmas. Christmas hates you. I'm just kidding. No, but for real, like, who wouldn't be excited about the fact that Jesus came to earth and was born, the seed of a woman, perfect, spotless, blameless, without reproach, lived a perfect life, did everything right so that he could exchange the life that he lived for the life that you never could. And not just on Christmas Day, like all the time, but man, when it's Christmas and everybody in the world is thinking about it and talking about it, what even more time to just be excited about it and celebrate the birth of Jesus. And it's crazy as the Father celebrated the birth of Jesus, even though the same time He's looking down and seeing Him born, He's outside of time, He sees Him hanging on a cross being beaten. But yet He still thought it was worth celebrating and dispatched angels to rejoice because He saw the day that you would understand the sacrifice that was made and receive that, and that fruit would reproduce itself inside of you, and you'd live the life that Jesus died for you to live. He can look right past... He can look right past Jesus being mistreated, being beaten, being abused, being spit on, having his beard ripped out, having people punch him in the face and say, oh, you're a prophet? Well, tell us who punched you, prophet. Prophesy. He looks right past that and he celebrates the day that he's born because he saw the day looking past the abuse of Jesus that you would look and see what Jesus did on the cross and you would give him your life and surrender your life over and to be born again a new creation his spirit would come live inside of you and he thinks that's worth celebrating even though he knows what Jesus is going to have to go through I don't get it I don't I got a son and a daughter and like if the day that they were born I remember what it was like I, I remember if I could have dispatched angels to rejoice I would have but I used an iPhone with pictures. That was like the next best thing. I fired out a group text, you know. It was like, God sends angels. I sent a text. And, and I was like, this is my daughter. And I was just so excited. And then my son came. I was like, this is my son. I was so excited. But if on that day they would have came into the waiting room when, not, when my son was born and said, um, sir, your son, your daughter, they've been born. Your child, child has been born. And they're healthy. They're perfect. Um, and I know, that's, I know that excites you, but I want you to watch this movie of their life real quick. Because it's going to end in the hands of angry men mistreating them when they've done nothing wrong. It's going to end with them hanging on a cross gasping for breath. It's going to end with them having thorns shoved into their head and being given sour wine to drink when they're thirsty. It's going to end being abandoned by everybody that loved them and nobody standing up for them. It's going to end with them on a cross giving up their last breath for the very people who did this to them. Probably would have tempered my joy a little bit. Seriously, probably would have, you know, like, the joy I felt of them being born probably would have been a little bit altered and a little bit changed by what I knew was going to happen to them at some point. 
But see, for God, He looks beyond that. And what gave Him joy on Christmas morning, I believe, was seeing all the different days that you would come alive. That you would accept the sacrifice that was made. And that was the joy. That's why it says Jesus for the joy set before Him. He saw the day that you would actually look up into those loving eyes and understand what He did for you. And surrender your life and be born again a new creation. His Spirit come live inside of you and you be capable of representing the Kingdom of Heaven here on earth. That's why angels sang. That's why they sang on Christmas Day. Peace on earth. Goodwill towards men. Don't ever let what was done to you define you. Don't ever let what wasn't done for you define you. See, because if you do that, you hand over control of your life to somebody else and it's not the Father. Truth of the matter is, when people do broken things to you, it's because they're broken themselves because that seed reproduces after its own kind and when they're broken inside, they reproduce brokenness on the outside. That's not your fault. And sometimes you get caught in the middle of it. Sometimes you get let down. Sometimes people mistreat you. Sometimes you feel disappointed. You know, the truth of the matter is, is those feelings are real, but you can't allow them to define if you're okay or not. Because feelings come and go. We've got to be anchored to something deeper than our feelings. Oh, gosh. This is that point in the message where you realize like, there's no chance that I'm getting to everything that I thought I was going to preach today. And you try to figure out if you should just try to push forward and make a smooth transition. And you realize there's not really a smooth transition from where we were to where I thought we were going. So we'll just ride this one out. We're actually going to take communion. Actually, you guys can start setting up the communion stuff right now if you want. We're going to take communion. And, and maybe in light of what we've been talking about this morning... You know, it says in the Word, it says that um, Paul was writing, and he said, you know, if you take commun- because you take communion unworthily, that there's some among you that are sick and even sleep. And that word sleep there, he meant, he meant die. And, and, and sometimes that verse has been used just to kind of scare people. Like, well, you better make sure that you're right with God because if you take communion and you've got unconfessed sin and stuff like that, and, 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 and told that you know if you do that, then you're taking communion unworthily and that's the worst thing you can do and that's why you're sick and if you don't shape up, you're going to die and all that stuff. And you realize that like, that's the most unworthy way that you could ever take communion. That's truly unworthy. Because if I take communion based on my good actions, then what I'm saying is, is that I believe I've been good enough to take communion. If I don't take communion based on my bad actions, I'm saying I believe that I haven't been good enough to take communion. And all the, the, uh, the uh, requirements of me being good enough or bad enough are placed on me. And my worthiness to take communion is based on my own actions. And none of us would be worthy if that was the case. What a self-righteous thing for me to stand there and think that I can examine my own actions to determine whether or not I'm worthy to take the body and the blood of Jesus in communion. What a horrible trick of the enemy to try to keep me from doing something so beautiful as to take communion with the body of Christ by making me think that it's up to me to figure out if I've been good or bad and examine myself. And when we examine ourselves to find out if we're worthy, there's one measuring stick for whether you're worthy to take communion or not, and that's this, am I in Him? Am I in Him? 
Am I born again? Not have I been good enough or bad enough over the past few weeks since we took communion last. It says that if you know your brother has something against you, go find your brother. It doesn't say that you know if you have something against your brother, go find them and tell them about it. It just says if you know that there's something, you don't want to be a stumbling block to somebody. If you know that they have something against you and that they are hurt by something that you've done, it says go to them and make it right. But when Paul's talking about examining ourselves, he's not saying examine whether or not my actions have been good or bad. He's saying examine this. Am I found in Him? Is my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life because of the blood of Jesus that was shed for me? Am I a new creation? in Christ. And if I am, then all things have passed away and everything's become new. And I am worthy to take communion because He says that I'm worthy, not because I do. And to take it based on anything else is about the most unworthy thing that we could do because there's nothing outside of Christ that makes us worthy. The good news is there's nothing inside of Christ that makes us unworthy. So why don't we just do that real quick before we take communion? Just everyone examine their own heart. We're not digging looking for sin. We're not digging looking for something wrong. We're standing before Him and saying, God, like my heart is Yours and I'm the steward of my own heart. I realize that. And I want to make sure that what I'm allowing in that I'm going to enjoy the fruit of when I re- eat, the, eat the fruit of it. That the seeds that have been sown, that I've sown into my own heart, God, that when the fruit comes forward, I'm going to like the fruit. And if there's something like that you know you've allowed into your own heart, and you see the fruit of it starting to pop up, and you don't like it, don't ignore it and don't fake it. Just ask God for the truth that replaces the lie. And repent. See, for the prodigal son, there wasn't this big long process. It was a simple process. It was understanding that where I was is better than where I am and turning back to where I was and immediately the father meets him and overwhelms him and welcomes him back in and calls him his son and treats him as if he'd never left. You know the only way that anyone would know that the son ever left? They had a party and he said, my son's come home. Not because he changed his name, not because he labeled him the prodigal son. That's in your Bible because it's a convenient way to find that story if you're looking through the chapters, but that's not the language that's given by Jesus to the pers- to what the Father calls the Son. He doesn't say, my prodigal son's come home. Why? Because when he turned back, he's no longer a prodigal. He's just his son. He says, my son's come home. No labels, no wandering son, no wasteful son. No, my son that sleeps with women that he shouldn't. No, my son that lives with the pigs. None of that stuff. He says, man, my son has come home. We're going to rejoice. He's not labeling you by the things that you've done wrong. He's not labeling you by mistakes. He calls you what you are. His son, his daughter. That's all that matters to him probably time we come to a place in our lives where that's all that matters to us. Where we can actually let go of things that people have done to us and understand, Father, forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing. Even if they thought they did, they didn't. Because if they really knew, there's no way they would have acted that way. See, in their mind, they might have meant to hurt you, but that's still just deception because they don't understand what they were created for. They don't understand they were created to represent the perfect loving Father. 
if they knew, they would have never done what they did. So even if they thought they knew, Father, forgive them, they really didn't know. That's a simple prayer to pray. I think it's why it's the last thing that Jesus said, one of the last things that He said on the cross, is because He's modeling for us what it's like to live the life that He came for us to live. And that's this, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. They nailed Him to a cross. They shoved thorns on His head. They mocked and ridiculed Him and ripped His beard out. They called Him a blasphemer. They brought Him to court. It looked to the whole world like they knew exactly what they were doing. But Jesus looks at them and understands. They don't know what they're doing. They might think they do, but they really don't. Because if they knew what they were doing, they'd never do what they've done. What a simple way to look at people that have done things wrong to you. To be able to look at them and not from some place of just trying to repeat something, but in your heart believing they were created by God to represent the Father to this world. And if they're doing something less than that, it's because they don't know what they're doing. Why would I let that change the way that I live? Why would I let somebody's ignorance to who God created them to be change me when I know who He created me to be? Why would I let the words that a person spoke have more weight in my life than the words that the Father spoke? If you're coming to the end of a year, don't take anything from 2015 into 2016 that the Father didn't put there. Twenty sixteen is going to be a year full of fruit. You get to determine what the fruit looks like by the seeds that you allow to grow. I promise you, you will live twenty sixteen in the fruit of the seeds that you allow to grow. And you don't get to determine whether fruit grows or not, but you do get to determine what kind of fruit you see in your life. God, I just thank You for that. I thank You, that God, that we can examine ourselves right now and rightly examine ourselves. God, that the question we ask before we take communion is not, am I good enough? But am I found in Christ? Am I in Him? Am I a new creation? Have old things truly passed away and everything become new? 